and good morning. This is your host, Alicia Bales, and you're listening to Byline Mendocino here on KZYXNZ. Byline Mendocino is a local bi-weekly media roundtable. I come to you every other Friday morning, alternating with Politics, a Love Story, hosted by Bob Bashansky. So today we're going to focus on local news, but from a completely different perspective. My guests are Ellen Weed and Reed Edelman of the Mendocino College Theater Department. Ellen is a theater artist and director who specializes in ensemble pieces in which local people write and perform monologues about their lives. She often titles these uh, shows First Person Plural. This month, she directed a piece at the college in Ukiah about the coronavirus pandemic called Coming Up for Air. And Reed Edelman is the director of the Theater Arts Department at Mendocino College. And full disclosure, I also work at the Theater Arts Department as a voice and speech coach and teacher. Um, we're going to talk about the power of community storytelling and how a community like ours, who's experiencing historic events, makes sense of what's happening together. So welcome. Ellen and Reed. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks That's for having us. Wonderful to have you here. So, um, Ellen, let's start with a little bit of context and background about your work as a as an artist. What would you like to know? So, like, how, what have you? What is your sort of history as a theater artist, and how did I, I sort of want to understand how you came to be doing these kinds of community collective pieces? But okay, okay. Um, I, I won't go way far back in my background, but I'll come. I'll be a little more local about it. And um, Kate Magruder and I were um, among the four or five people who were founders of UK Players Theater. And about three or four years into working on this full-time, this enormous project of UPT, Kate and I came to the conclusion that we wanted to include the community some way other than as audience. And um, what did we decide? Okay, yes, we decided that talent shows were not the way to do it for a lot of reasons. And so then we pondered it for a while, and we came up with the idea that everybody's got a story to tell, which is a fact. It's not just an idea. It's a fact. And so then uh, what evolved from that was it started out, we called it Telling the Truth in a Small Town, and then it evolved into first-person plural, but it was the same concept. Well, so why did you why did you and Kate feel like that was such an important part of what the theater would do? Because it's a, it was a community theater, and the involvement of the community many times is just as audience, and we just felt that you know here are all these people sitting out there they've all got stories, and that's that's kind of what we did. All right, so you wanted to give those local stories a stage. Yes, kind of like what we do on the radio. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We're sort of like sister mediums, I think. Yeah, it's live theater both ways. Right. And, and Reed, what about you as a theater director and a director of a local theater program? Mm -hmm. Why was it important for you to bring this coming up for air, the COVID collage, to the college? Well, hearing uh, Ellen talk about, uh, about UPT and Kate, um, this class, Kate Magruder and I actually co-wrote this class a number of years ago to create this new class, Theater 105 Narrative Theater, which is what Ellen, uh, was the class that Ellen was teaching as part of this production. And it really came from the same impetus with Kate and I talking about the, just what Ellen said, that we, 
we wanted the theater program to not just be putting on plays, which are great, we all love putting on plays, but um, but to also be a um, a forum for for people in our community to tell their 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 stories. Um, and so that we wrote that class, and then Ellen came to me maybe a year or so ago, having seen the class we had written, and said, "This is exactly what I do. It's no accident because actually they <laughs> <laughs> helped write it." Um, and uh, and and you said you wanted to do you know an original narrative theater project, and then I think that was before the COVID. It was pandemic. before COVID, and it yeah. was going to be bridging the divide, and it was right, about, about the politics. tribalism yeah. in politics. Oh, yeah, uh -huh. that's right. That's right. And then when COVID hit, we we adjusted and said, "Well, wait a minute. <laughs> this, is, this is this is the story that needs to be told now." Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and who who participates in your um, first person plural and and these narrative theater classes? Who comes? Who. You mean in the in theater one hundred five A narrative yeah, theater? Yeah, or or your you also do performances. You produce them yourself, right? I did. Yeah, I stopped. It just got too hard. It's for a me. lot of work. Yeah, yeah. It's huge <laughs> insurance and bookings and all of that. Just too much. I just jump in for a second on that question, which is that. One of the things I love about the class you just taught is that it was such a mix of diverse people. Mm -hmm. And there were theater majors in the ca in the cast who were taking other acting classes and had been familiar to me as part of our theater program. And then that was maybe about a half of the students in the play. Right. And then the other half were people I had never met before that you brought in who were drawn into the theater because of what you were doing. And... I think that's also part of the power of it. It doesn't just bring the actors, it brings people who do have a desire to tell these stories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily acting because mm -hmm. you do create these first-person monologues from their life experience. From their life experience, yeah. So, And that's why I'm so curious about who comes because a lot of people would find this process terrifying, mm -hmm. right? But you came up with an ensemble of people who really w were present and wanted to tell the story of their experience with the coronavirus pandemic. Well, that part, Alicia, is kind of magical to me. I never know who's going to show up. And it's sort of like, okay, who are you and what are you interested in? Okay, you you care about global warming. Let's focus on that. And so just drawing people out and finding out what their thing is, that's how you get them to tell their stories. Okay, yeah, so let's, let's talk about your process working with people. Because um, I saw the show... Uh, what was the date? It was not last weekend, but the weekend before. Yeah. And it was just stunning how personal and how completely uh, relevant to the audience, at least my experience as an audience member. It was, it was personal, but also really relevant to my experience as well. I could really identify with it. And I just wondered how what the process of the group was that could come up with these kinds of highly impactful personal stories. Okay, so it started with finding people who were who really related to the issue of the pandemic mm -hmm. when i say pandemic i mean the broader not just the virus all of it all of that we've been experiencing because it's it's a conglomerate and finding people who resonated with that to begin with and including them in the class that was the only real pre prerequisite for this particular one was just why do you care why do you want to do this mm -hmm. what are you here for 
and then going from there with a structure. I always have a structure, and it's, it's very simple. It's beforehand foreshadowing the event and the aftermath, always for everything, first person plural, telling the truth, all of that was structured in that way. Mm -hmm. So there's the, the whole production is structured in sort of this narrative kind of linear. Exactly, exactly. And also I, I do what I call thematic wraparound, which is there's a theme and you wrap the whole package in that theme so it's it's like this and then inside is a structure mm -hmm. so and how much of the content comes directly from the participants all of it uh, way more than i can use uh, oh interesting. what you came to uh, on that saturday evening could have been nine and a half hours long and then you have to deal with well but i wrote this great thing and it's not in here and Nine and a half hours is too long. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a little too long for immersive theater. Yeah. <laughs> Almost as long as the pandemic. Um, so then you're doing a lot of writing with, with the people in the cast. They do the writing, mm -hmm. and I do the editing. In our case, in the case of Coming Up for Air, Reed was very instrumental in the editing because it was still way too long, even though I had cut a lot. Okay, well, I have pulled some cuts okay. from Coming Up for Air. It is available on the Mendocino College Theater's YouTube yes. page. And also there's a link on the website. So people can either go to our YouTube uh, channel, which is uh, Mendocino College Theater on YouTube, or just go to the college webpage and click on the arts, and you'll see online repertory theater, which is where we've been producing plays during the pandemic. There's lots of stuff there, and the most recent one is, is, uh, is Coming Up for Air. Okay, so um, this particular cut, so you can watch the whole performance. Yes, the whole um, performance for free. For free on the web. Um, but uh, one of the things that I thought was remarkable about the piece um, was that so much has happened during the pandemic, right? It's not just about, uh, you know, people getting sick from the coronavirus. We've gone through this whole ordeal from the very beginning, and you plow right into the the chapters sort of our of our experience we're still experiencing this yes. all of us so it's not something maybe we've had an opportunity to reflect on so much but this piece really helped start that process for for me at least um and it, it goes back to the very early days of the pandemic it goes through uh you know some of the polarization that you're talking about where you're arguing with your family members about whether the the pandemic is a you know a left-wing antifa plot and masking <laughs> and, um, and then and then the murder of george floyd and the black lives matter protests throughout the summer and just and the lockdowns and the shopping and not being able to get toilet paper all this stuff was in this production and still is in our lives yeah so this cut maybe you can introduce it it's the aunt denise cut okay yeah cody um in one of our class discussions pretty early on i was i asked the class what conflict has have you lived have you experienced in your personal life within the context of the pandemic and what Cody came up with was the strife in his own family. Mm -hmm. And Denise, and Denise, I don't know whether that's her real name. It doesn't matter to me. Um, and Denise was a big factor for that because he, she was an aunt that he really loved. And the, the schism is probably un, what's the word, unbridgeable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, let's hear uh, Cody 
and Phaedra, two actors from Coming Up for Air, uh, performers, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And this is um, Aunt Denise. Hey, Aunt Denise. So I watched that video you sent, the Simone Goldblum. Oh, I'm glad you watched it. I don't know how much longer I can stay sheltered like this. I'm depressed, Cody. I need people. Yeah. Yeah. And this vaccine is causing all sorts of problems. People are having heart palpitations. I have arrhythmia. And after my heart attack, I just can't risk it. And Simone brings up all these studies of how they don't know what's in the vaccine. And how these malaria drugs have a pretty significant effect against the virus. I mean, she mentions them, but she doesn't cite any of those studies. And all reputable health organizations agree that hydroxychloroquine doesn't affect COVID cases. But there are studies, and I don't trust those health organizations. I feel like big drug companies are trying to make money off these vaccines, and they don't want to admit that there's a cheaper alternative. Okay, so to clarify, you asked for my opinion on this video as a source, right? Yes, I really value your opinion. And I appreciate that. Well, you're asking who's profiting off of this, but I feel like you're asking the right question in the wrong place. Who's profiting off the vaccines? No. Who's profiting off of this message being put out into the world? Well, yeah, they're benefiting off the idea that vaccines are safe, which is totally untrue, but that's beside the point. That is the point. You believe vaccines aren't safe. Who's benefiting off of that? No one is benefiting off of it. Anti-vaxxers aren't making money off not taking the vaccine, but Big Pharma is making money, and no one is challenging them, which is why it's huge that an established doctor like Simone Gold, she's a lawyer too, by the way, is speaking out at great personal risk. But it's not risky for her. She's not a doctor and a lawyer. She's a former doctor turned lawyer. She's no longer a doctor because she didn't practice according to COVID regulations. And now she's trying to use her platform to claim the regulatory system is corrupt. She practiced against regulations for COVID patients. She had the ability to give patients Medicine that the higher-ups refused to give even though they knew it would help. Except they didn't know it could help because reputable scientists found negligible connections between hydroxychloroquine and COVID recovery. That's not what Simone Gold says. Insurance companies are trying to cover their costs. She studied medicine. Simone Gold was an ER doctor. Why is she weighing in on the subject of virology? Well, because she studied medicine, she understands the science behind it. Okay, you asked me for my honest opinion, right? Yes. To give you that, I'm trying to look at the whole picture. You're saying that she's an expert, but everything screams otherwise. Like what? Look at the venue. She's speaking inside of a convention event, inside a megachurch. That's a church? It's got a huge stage. It's a megachurch. Their whole purpose is to televise their message and get followers. And their message is that social distancing mandate shouldn't be enforced because the CDC is wrong. And so she has to go through every point they've ever made in order to invalidate the whole thing. She says vaccines don't work, that masks are ineffective, that social distancing isn't necessary. She essentially says the entire pandemic is a hoax. Why are you getting so upset? Because she claims to be a doctor and what she's saying is garbage. Can you not see how it absolutely benefits a megachurch to have COVID restrictions lifted? They're not even attempting to practice safe distancing. Everybody in that room just wants an easy way back to normal. We all want an easy way back to normal. Yes, but it, it doesn't work that way. People are dying whether Simone Gold believes it or not. Simone is trying to spread awareness of truth. I'm a truth seeker, Cody. Her organization, America's Frontline Workers, they're all doctors.
shed light on how corrupt the medical system is. If they all speak like Simone Gold, their arguments are dangerous. All she did on that stage was fearmonger. If anything should put it into perspective, she was at the Capitol building on January 6th. Oh, don't even get me started on that. What do you mean? They're trying to make us believe that people raided the building. People did raid the building. <laughs> Cody, they were let inside the building. Police at the building opened the doors. Yeah, because police at the building were sympathetic to Trump's rhetoric. Trump had nothing to do with it. The Capitol Police opened the doors and tried to make it look like people raided the building. What would be the point of that? Antifa. Antifa wants you to think a bunch of Trump supporters raided the building. The cops who opened the doors are sympathetic to Antifa. How on earth is that your takeaway? If you can't see it, Cody, then I can't help you. It's as clear as day. I have lived and seen a lot more than you have, and when you get to be my age... Okay, pause. <laughs> <laughs> I can't ask her to get vaccinated because somehow vaccines themselves have become political. And I want her to get vaccinated. I want her to survive this. I've known her my entire life. Her heart is one of the kindest hearts that I know. Her heart's the entire reason our family is still together. then maybe you'll understand. I want you to get the vaccine. <sighs> Cody, I just, I really don't think it's good for my heart. <laughs> okay. That was a cut from Coming Up for Air, a COVID collage directed by Ellen Weed. Ellen Weed and Reed Edelman are here in the studio with me this morning talking about the work of um, community storytelling. You guys, you want to comment on that that cut? Um, yeah, I, I was when I was listening, I was reflecting on Cody's process in this. And it was, um, he had to process the fact that he, he thought the aunt that he loved would die. Mm -hmm. And that was how he was expressing it through this dialogue. Mm -hmm. And um, later in the, the production, uh, we don't have a cut from it, but Cody says, let's pretend that uh, it doesn't matter if I'm right. Doesn't matter, being right doesn't matter at all. It's just pretend, right? And that was part and parcel of what we just heard also was um, the, am I, I'm right, you're right, no, you're wrong, I'm right. And the urgency of being right in this particular situation is, is life and death. And that's why it's so scary. So that's my comment on that. Yeah, I mean, it. It, uh, it. I was thinking about the fact that before the pandemic hit, you were going to do a piece called Bridging the Divide about the political divide in our country and how that worked. It's it's still so much a part of this play. Yes. But, yeah. Yes, it's the tribalism. Mm -hmm. Right, and how that 
uh, that being in place as we moved into something that was really very threatening to us as a society, this pandemic, uh, that entrenched polarization had a, has had a huge effect on, you know, whether or not people get health care, whether or not they survive. Yes. I've heard a lot of stories of people who were very outspoken against vaccinations and masking and that who then got sick, you know. Some of them died. Yeah. And how do people deal with people who they truly they love, love who are on, you know, so they disagree with so much, but they still love each other. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It was difficult to watch that piece, uh, but but really, really important to see him reaching out and to hear her, the you know her arguments back and just it was just really important to see that you know this is happening to a lot of a lot of people or to understand that that's what's happening within people's families and it's right. really painful. Yeah. And I think that what emboldened Cody to write the piece and create the piece was the knowledge that it wasn't just him mm -hmm. that was experiences. Well, it came up in other pieces in the production as well, like when Richard, Richard's monologue about his his uh, his family his, and his roommates. His, oh, yeah. It was his his son and his daughter-in-law mm -hmm. were wore mega hats in the house, uh -huh. and played right-wing podcasts all all day long, and he lived with that. And this was during Shelter in Place. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he says in his monologue in the in the piece, he says. Uh, that he he wasn't interested. The way he put it is, I wasn't interested in that line of thinking. <laughs> but but he also it ends with this plea of, can't we all find a way to get get along? Yeah, can't is, we all get yeah. along, please? Mm -hmm. What are some of the other issues that that came up during during the process of coming up for air this um, COVID collage? Well, I have to say, Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know we don't we don't mostly use curse words, but. Um, I have to say it out loud because it was very prevalent. Sorry, <laughs> I got the dump button ready. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, that that was really big, and uh, it was almost hard not to have it in every piece uh, because it came up in, in, in their writing on every piece. Mm -hmm. And then and, the other thing was the is is Black Lives Matter and uh -huh. and. Yes. Justice, racial and justice, George Floyd, yeah, and, George and Floyd, what yeah. we we witnessed, we witnessed that, and that I think that was good that that mm -hmm. came out of COVID, that we had to really look at that. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Right. That I mean, that was one of the things watching the show, remembering how big a part of our experience of COVID, the Black Lives Matter protests that summer were, and the George Floyd's murder and the trial and, and all of that stuff, you know, it's, um, you were talking before the show started about collective trauma. Yes. And how we're still in this. Yes. So it's hard to really even get it that we're in a collective trauma. I mean, we might intellectually know it, but in terms of actually dealing with it, you know, and, and kind of one of the things I said in the introduction was like, we are as a community are, we're experiencing the news, like this community in particular, and many communities across the country, we're experiencing these very traumatic yeah. disasters. Yeah. And this one's an ongoing disaster. Um, and so what, what does it, what does it do with the kind of performances that you are putting together? How, you know, how does it help us deal with that collective trauma? I think what helps us dealing, deal with it is that it is collective. 
when, like for example, if I'm in a, in a horrendous car accident, you as my friend, I can tell you, oh, this is what happened to me, and you would be empathetic to me, because it's my experience, it's my trauma. But this is our trauma. We're living it. And so it's a shared trauma. It's a collective trauma. It's a collective narrative. Yeah. Do you want to hear another cut from Coming Up for Air? Sure. Um, so this is uh, Phaedra again, and it's a, a just a really knockout monologue that she did about her sort of coming awareness through watching what was happening with George Floyd's murder and the protests, um, her own awareness of her own internalized racism. Do you have anything else to say about it before I play it? Only that I think that Lucia's uh, voiceover yeah. really enhanced that. Right. I don't know if you have both, but they, what, the, Lucia's voiceover came right after that piece, and it sort of became one piece in the... Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I, did, I didn't include that, uh -huh. but people can watch they, yeah. it on, on the video. Um, this is Phaedra from Coming Up for Air. Riot sweeps Chicago. As a headline in a newspaper, I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. April to November was named the Red Summer. There were incidents of violence and bloodshed, riots, lynchings, and mobs across the country. Hundreds of African-American lives were lost, and hundreds more were left maimed or homeless. I hope you're asking yourself, how could this happen in today's society? Would it surprise you to know that this headline is from events that occurred over a hundred years ago? It was the summer of 1919, right on the heels of the Spanish flu pandemic. That was a hundred years ago, so what? It's still happening today, that's what. I used to think that most people in this country were like me. I was raised to ju judge a person on who they were, not what they were that skin color, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or even the kind of genes you wore are not indicators of personality traits. They don't define who you are. I've always assumed that in this enlightened day and age that we live in, the majority of America felt that way. Sure, there are a few outliers, but on the whole, nobody really thinks otherwise, do they? I mean, slaves were emancipated over 150 years ago, and we had the Civil Rights Movement, right? I mean, that fixed the notions of equality and inequality, didn't it? I used to hear people of color saying, it's because I'm black that this happened to me, and I'd get mad. And when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, I was outraged. How dare he? I couldn't believe that after all this time, people are still playing the race card. And then a man said, I can't breathe. I was horrified to learn that my whole life I had been living a lie, a great big white lie. That lie that white people tell themselves that racism doesn't really exist. I'm ashamed that I didn't see, that I let myself believe the big white lie. The murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor pulled the veil of white privilege from my eyes, and it was painful. My heart filled with so much hurt and outrage, real outrage. I, I couldn't believe that what I was seeing was really happening. I realized that I'd been living in a little bubble of ignorance, floating through life on a cloud of white privilege. Happily so, 
blissfully ignorant. I didn't know any different. But that's over. I have been asleep all my life, and now I'm awakened. Awakened to a world I'm not sure I like. I can no longer pretend that inequality doesn't exist. I can no longer look away from the injustices perpetrated upon people of color. And I have the pandemic to thank for shaking me so rudely awake. All this time we've been spending at home with not much to do, been more active on social media, watching more TV, reading more headlines, and we see. From late May to the end of June, in what has been named the racial reckoning summer of 2020, over 20 million people protested the deaths of George and Brianna. And that says something to me. I'm sure there were not a lot of protests back in 1919, but today, people are speaking up and speaking out against something that has gone on for far too long. And that, my friends, is a good thing. It's been 100 years since that headline, and we've come a long way. But we still have so much further to go. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales, in the studio with Ellen Weed and Reed Edelman. We're talking about a, a performance called Coming Up for Air, a COVID collage uh, that happened at the college in Ukiah, at the Ukiah campus, two weeks ago, uh, directed by Ellen Weed. Um, what a powerful piece. How yeah. courageous to get up on stage in front of her community and say that. I'm ashamed, she said. Yeah. That was yeah. so powerful. And that's what I, why I was saying before, that was a good thing that came out of the pandemic. A lot of people woke up. A lot of people woke up. Yeah. And so what, what does it do to the participants in one of these ensemble performances? Like, do, how do they change or how does it affect them to, to do this? I think it's cathartic. I think that would be the word to just like get it out and have it be there. And that's the power of live theater, I think. The fact that it's spontaneous, it's in the moment, and it's happening. Every time you perform it, it's happening. And that is catharsis over and over again, if, you, if it's a long run. Does it make a difference? I mean, I know that it does, but what difference does it make to have people in the audience? Oh, hmm. wow. Reed said, or before we we actually had an audience, we we found out that we could have an audience, and we figured out how to do it safely. Uh, we said, "Oh, they're going to just come alive when when there's an audience there," and it was stunning the difference that they they were sharing. I, I you know it's visceral; it's not something conscious. You just it happens, mm -hmm. and there's this communication that happens on, in live theater between an audience and and the people on stage that that is incomparable. It just it's in the moment and it's happening then, mm -hmm. and it's even it's a shared catharsis. I think. Yeah, right. Like, what's the effect on the on the audience? Yeah. Um, as, on you, yeah. As a, I mean, as an audience member, we were blown away. Yeah. You know, it was really, it was incredibly cathartic, like you said. Uh, especially the fact that you put 
you put the whole picture together, right? From the the foreshadowing before it all comes along, and then the the pandemic itself, and then you know ending up with the idea of what comes next, you know, reflecting on the future, um, and and just this whole picture that was really important to understanding what had what had and what is currently happening to us. I th- I think. Um it would have been wonderful, like Reed said earlier, if there had been an aftermath and we could look back and say this was that. But it, w- there's no was to it. There's an is. Yeah, when we it. when we started talking mm-hmm. about the production, we thought that we thought it would be the idea of coming up for air. We thought it was going to be about the emergence from <laughs> the pandemic and how we return to normal life, and and it kept getting longer and longer. So that we're still, and now we're still in it. So. The aftermath is really, you know, we're still living the aftermath. Right. And, and as far as the audience goes, people may be wondering, you know, well, why didn't they hear about this performance that we're talking about? Because we did not publicize it. We were, as Ellen said, we didn't know, you know, we were even going to be allowed to have an audience. Um, but the we were um, we worked out an arrangement where we could have a small audience of just the invited guests of the of the cast. So we had a small invited audience for three nights, and then we we videotaped it. But you know that was not the original plan. The original plan was a was a actual production, and mm-hmm. we we just weren't ready for that. Because we assumed when we first discussed it was way back in before April. Yeah, we thought we'd be coming out of it. Yeah, it must have been right after people started getting vaccinated, and we had that couple of minutes where we thought, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. it's going to be over any minute I can now. See faces yeah. again. Yeah. 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 But it was so important to have the audience there. Uh, it made such a difference. We just had, on the first night, we had 10 people in the audience, and the second night we had 20, and the final night we had 30. Mm-hmm. And the, the final night with 30 audience members was the night that we, we filmed it. Mm-hmm. So it really made a difference. Yeah. Well, Ellen, I have I was really excited to come to this piece, um, just because I'm familiar with your work, but the last piece that I saw and was an audience member in was um, the event at the Redwood Valley Grange to commemorate the the Redwood Complex fire. Um, and similarly, but on a larger scale, because I think there were about 250 people yeah. in the house for that one, yeah. um, that's where I really started to get a sense of what this community collective storytelling can do for a community. So um, to me, that event, I don't uh, it was uh, commemorating the, the Redwood Complex fire, right. uh, which we've just, again, seen that anniversary, October 8th. October 8th and 9th, yeah. Um, so I think it was about two years ago now? Yes, it was. So it was before COVID. Um, but you had a group of fire survivors uh, talk about their experience packing the Redwood Valley Grange, hundreds of community members there. Can you talk, I've got some cuts from that production, we can play them if you'd like, but can you talk about that experience? Oh boy. Well, uh, every, they met, it it wasn't at the college, it was just something that I did, and um, I got grants to do it, so that, because I knew it was going to be a big project. Um, And um, they met in my living room for 12 weeks, twice a week for 12 weeks. And it was supposed to be an hour and a half each time, and sometimes it was four hours. It didn't, you know, it just happened. And it was the same structure the beforehand, the foreshadowing, the event, and the aftermath. Uh, that was the only structure I gave them, and I asked them each to write about those four aspects of, and, and this is what emerged. 
one of the things that was just so powerful about that event was I don't think um, people knew the personal experiences of all of the people who had been affected they by were all survivors, the yeah. direct survivors of like, the crisis. A lot of them had left their lost their homes of thirty five years, forty years. And and, fi- and to hear the stories, all of them together, and there were some musicians there who'd written music yes. about it, and um, it was they were also survivors, right? And and I hadn't heard about those harrowing moments on Tom Kai Road and everything. It was like kind of really important for the community to understand what had happened. And in Redwood Valley, the audience, there were a lot of people in the audience who were direct survivors of the Redwood Complex fire, who were Redwood Valley people, which is why we had it at that range. Mm -hmm. Were you worried at all about traumatizing people, or how did you deal with with that? You know, theater is funny that way. You just do it, and you hope for the best, because people, some people will be offended or insulted, and other people will be overly uh, emotionally affected by it and that we had an intermission so that there would they could walk it off and they could do all that um but you you really uh, for me uh, speaking for myself i really can't say well this might happen so i won't whatever because there are too many things like that mm-hmm. especially when you have a group of people who are so invested in telling their stories yes. All right, so um, would you like to play a cut from that one? Sure. Okay, so I've got two cuts lined up. Um, One of them is Charlotte. Do we want to start with hers? Sure. Okay, do you want to introduce it at all? Yeah, Charlotte, um, this one one was when she first, when she first awoke to it, when the she first realized uh, that there was a fire. Uh, She was just uh, disoriented, but didn't know why. And you'll see that in her piece. Okay, so we are going to now play a piece about the Redwood Valley fire. So for people who um, are concerned about being traumatized, um, you can turn your radio off. This cut is about, um, is about two minutes. I am a light sleeper and experience insomnia. On Sunday evening, I remember lying in the dark of our bedroom, listening to the sweet sounds of snoring children throughout the house and gazing out our large bedroom bay window with a view of the eastern hills between Tomkai and Potter Valley and a wide sky often full of stars. Short bursts of wind tumbled from the western ridge just above and behind our house and through the canyon below us. I saw the oak tree branches outside my window moving furiously, and then there was a sudden calm. It was early Monday morning, about 12.40 a.m., and something about that stillness made me more alert. Immediately after that, the sky above the eastern hills came aglow with an orange light. My first thoughts did not turn to wildfire, but confusion. For a split second, I thought I was witnessing something celestial. I yelled for Tom to wake up. He was in a deep slumber, and I had to shake him quite a bit. What is that? What's going on? Almost immediately, we both saw bright, tall flames at the peak of the eastern hills and exclaimed, fire. We got out of bed, and I turned on the computer to see if we could find anything on the CAL FIRE incident page, on social media. I didn't see anything about the fire, so I started calling my neighbors. 
Then Monroe's son, Eli, answered and said he was on the other line with his younger brother, Wesley, who had just called to warn them. I said, I figured you guys don't have the view I have. Eli must have walked outside and gotten a better view of the fire then because I heard him say, oh, wow. All right, that was Charlotte and Scott. Charlotte Scott. And what was the name of the performance? Of the entire thing? Yeah. I didn't give it a title. I just said it was the Fire Survivor Ensemble. Mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't find a ti- the title that I felt was worthy of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're listening to Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Ellen Weed, who directed that production and also coming up for air a covid collage two weeks ago at mendocino college and reed edelman who's the director of the mendocino uh, college theater department Um, and we're talking about the power of live collective storytelling Um, and i don't think there's a more powerful local example than than that event at the redwood valley grange two years ago can i give you just a little bit of an aside about uh charlotte um uh, there's always some wonderful things that come out of these experience. Well, a lot of wonderful things that come out of these experience. And Charlotte lived on a different part of Tomkai than the rest of the fire survivors, um, other than Jay, who lived elsewhere. But most of them were in what they called Mariposa Ranch. And she was not. She was a different part of it. So she didn't know her neighbors. And she called the Monroes just because she knew their phone number, but she didn't really know them. And through this whole experience, the the entire community in Redwood Valley came together. And Charlotte made friends with a lot of people on Tomkai that she had not been close to before. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, as the story started to be woven through the course of the two and a half hours, um, it became clear that they were integral in each other's survival. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's bonding, a permanent bond. Mm-hmm. And a bond created with the 250 people who were there in the audience I as well. So. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we have one more cut from that. Do you want to do you want to play that? Which one is it? It's um, Ross Walker and oh, yeah. Mary Ross Monroe. Is a, Ross's escape. I called yeah. it Ross's escape. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, I had no idea what people had encountered that night and um, that they ended up you know, kind of driving around yeah. trying to get out and um, ended up going the north way on Tomkai up to Across Willis. Nine Creeks. Nine uh. Creek crossings, which I think is important to bring up again for the community in this moment as we are in, you know, several years, four years aftermath and how far have we gotten in the process of sort of reckoning with the safety of our communities and their what they call it ingress and egress the ability for folks to get out during these emergencies we learned a lot yeah all right so let's listen to this cut up from the fire survivors uh monologues this is ross walker and mary monroe escaping from our house meant driving toward the fire Half a mile or so along our driveway, heading towards Tomkai Road, we drove into billowing waves of hot wind with cinders blowing into our windshield, and we could hear a roar in the distance. The roar grew louder as we headed south on Tomkai, and as we approached West Road, the tree canopy opened and we could see a wall of flame ahead. 
it became obvious that continuing in that direction was a very bad idea. I knew the back road north through the Nine Creek crossings to get to Willits, and heading that way seemed the only rational thing to do. I told Charlotte we should head north, and she was completely in agreement. Once I turned around, I felt pretty safe. I knew where the fire was, I knew the route to escape, and I knew that we could do it. As we tra retraced our route back up Tomkai, there was a group of half a dozen vehicles pulled over to the side of the road, obviously trying to figure out what to do. I stopped, saw my neighbors, Kim and Mary Monroe. I shouted that the West Road route to the freeway looked very dangerous and that we were heading north. A woman I didn't recognize in one of the vehicles became hysterical, saying that you couldn't drive out that way, and I told her that it could be done, and that was what we were about to do, and we left. Shoes on, out the door. Kim headed down to the shop where he had parked his car earlier. I drove by him and then drove by our neighbors, Andy and Netta, who were carrying things out to their car still. I waited for Kim at the bottom of the road, but he didn't show. So I circled back up again, and just as I got to the shop, he zoomed out ahead of me. He had returned to the house for his keys. I sped after him and passed Andy and Netta again. See you at Eagle Peak School, I called out. Little did I know that West Road was already on fire and we could not go out that way. Little did I know that Andy had dropped his keys in the dark and wouldn't be able to leave until about 15 minutes later. Little did I know that Charlotte and Jan's escape would get blocked by a flaming fallen tree. I just followed Kim out our mile-long dirt driveway. At first, we were so sure where we'd be going. I had told Annie and Netta we'd see them at the school. So we turned right and drove south on Tomkai until, bam, we ran into an eddy of uncertainty at Jimmy's Bridge, cars circling like ants on a crumb, the sky red and aglow before us, the unmaintained Tomkai Road behind us. Ross and Charlotte and Ari came zooming back towards us out of the glow. They stopped and I shouted out the window, where are you going? It's on fire out there. We're going up Tomkai. Up Tomkai? Well, we can't escape that way. It's all on fire out there. That galvanized the jam. Kim and I turned around and went back up the road to the end of our driveway, where again a bunch of cars and people were milling about. Kim got in with me because he realized that his car was just about out of gas. Meanwhile, Andy and Netta were still way back up the drive searching for the car keys that had been dropped in the dark. Thankfully, we learned later that they did make it out by taking West Road, but in a terrifying shower of flying embers and falling burning logs. Meanwhile, Ross and Charlotte and Ari intrepidly flew on up Tomkai like an arrow sure of its path. Meanwhile, Eli had warned several neighbors and was about to drive out in his really old Honda Civic. His girlfriend, Anna, yelled, Eli, 
no, take the expensive car. <laughs> so they pulled up next to us in our RAV4. Again, I questioned the choice to go up Tomkai. Eli said, don't worry, Mom. I've driven this road hundreds of times. Just follow me. We all turned into a snaky caravan, twisting up the road, breathlessly dipping down and around, into and out of Nine Creek crossings on the unmaintained part of Tomkai Road. I just followed Eli, heading to Willits. All right, the riveting story of the uh, 2017 Redwood Complex fire, October 8th and 9th. We're here in the studio with Ellen Weed, who directed that production uh, two years ago in Redwood Valley, at the Redwood Valley Grange. So a comment I have about the cut you just played, a couple. Um, Mary's, Mary's part of the story, um, by the way, she calls herself Mary Waters Monroe. I should have said that. Um, and Mary's part of the story there was the beforehand for her was that the night before, that night prior to the fire starting, was her son's birthday. And that's why he was there. They had a big birthday party. And um, so Eli wouldn't have been there otherwise. But it was very helpful because he knew what to do. So that was astonishing to me. And then the, the other part was that when they got to Willits, they followed Ross and Charlotte, not the same Charlotte, Charlotte, Ross's wife, Charlotte. Um, and when they got to Willits, they tried to find a place to be. And there was an inn or a hotel, there's something in Willits. And when they got in there, they wanted to rent a room so they could just take a shower and yeah. debrief a little uh, i'll go quickly and so um the, the the person the person at the desk was um trying to charge them a lot of money like much more than mm. it should have been and they finally just paid it but it it was clear that they they were trying to profit from this wow. catastrophe after these people had barely escaped with yeah, their lives yeah. out this crazy dirt road through this mm -hmm. ordeal. Well, there was another story of someone who their car got stuck in a ditch and um, and they had to essentially hitchhike out in the back of a truck. Yes, some people that they didn't know, and, and they but they made it out. That was the part of Charlotte Scott and Jan Hoyman's escape mm -hmm. experience. And I want to thank uh, John Beatty for that recording. He was the sound person for God that. God bless event. him for that. Yeah, and he, he made a point of getting that recording to me for if this If you're week listening, for John, show. thanks a lot. We love yeah, you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so this is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Ellen Weed and Reed Edelman, uh, w kind of inspired by a program that you did two weeks ago about the coronavirus update, or I'm sorry, <laughs> coronavirus pandemic called Coming Up for Air, a COVID collage at Mendocino College. Um, similarly to the Redwood Valley event, uh, community members working collectively, writing first-person monologues and sharing them with the with the community in a kind of a collective um, event that helps us kind of process what, what we're experiencing. 
Well, what you said after the show, I shared with, I made the whole cast come out so I could tell them what you said. I was said. pretty enthusiastic. About <laughs> yeah, <the show>. <laughs> <laughs> Gushing, I would say. We should also, can I just quickly give credit to the actors in the cuts from, from Coming Up for Air were, were Phaedra Swearingen and Cody Phillips, since we didn't Wonderful. say their Thank full you. names. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But um, what were you saying, Ellen? I forgot. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh well, that, uh, Alicia coming out into the hallway. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. oh my Alicia, God, you said amazing. something. They pro- they posted our, our pain and uh, something else really cogent. Uh, what did you say? Do you remember? Um, I mean, I remember how I felt, which was just that you know I hadn't even really remembered all of the parts of our experience that way. But because the stories were just so authentic and so true to their to their experience of the pandemic, I was able to relate with them and it helped me understand what we'd all just been through. You know, and, and everyone that I went with took turns kind of crying and, you know, having those moments mm-hmm. of, oh yeah, oh my gosh, and really like the gut punch of, especially for me, Phaedra's monologue about, you know, coming to awareness of yes. the white supremacy in our culture, but a lot of moments like that. For others, it was the, you know, discussing, um, you know, the conspiracy theories with their loved ones or, you know, the lockdown. There, was, uh, there were a lot of moments about what it was like to go to the grocery store, you know, and just the everyday sort of mundane trauma yes. of being around your community members, but feeling so in danger, you know, and then not being able to get necessities or, you know, and how it affected everybody's just, you know, even your ability to have a meal, you know, or go out and just do everyday activities. So, you know, it was very, I, I thought it was a very important thing to experience. And I hope that people uh, do check out the, the video. Uh, because it was a very courageous and generous thing that all of your performers did to yeah. to delve into their own sort of trauma and bring out some coherent narrative that we could all um, really associate with and you know understand and and identify with. So right. and you too as a director, mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of a calling for you, right? Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the structure of your programs, um, the last kind of beat or chapter of your performances is about looking forward the aftermath is looking backward and looking forward mm-hmm. both at, almost simultaneously what i've been through and what either i want it to be or i'm afraid it would be it will be because it isn't done Right. There was some apocalyptic vision, and yes. then there was some, you know, much more heartwarming vision. Yeah, the of bubble good... cars and the. <laughs> 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 um, and so, for you, what's next for you, Ellen? I don't know. Well, I guess I get to teach again. Mm-hmm. I get to teach again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Do you have any idea of what no. the project's going to be? No. But it'll be this first person plural kind it'll, of. It'll be the the narrative theater format, which it, it which it was as Reed said, it was developed to fit this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, we are gonna leave it there and say goodbye. Any kind of last thoughts from from both of you about this process or the production? Only the, uh, for me, uh, the uh, the uh, thing that I would want to share with people who are li- listening is that we are still being very brave. And that human beings, I've discovered through this whole business, are infinitely adaptable creatures. That we can adapt to what we're still living through after all these months. And be sitting in a studio chatting with each other is pretty astounding to me. Sure is, definitely.
and just thank you for having us and helping uh, bring this this work to the public. So thank you. Absolutely, thank you for your amazing work. It fits radio like a glove. Um, <laughs> certainly, uh, using language and storytelling to bring us all together in community and help us be as healthy uh, and well adjusted <laughs> as we can be, considering the times. <laughs> and anything that helps with that, I am way all for. So thank you very much. This has been Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. I'll be back in two weeks. Uh, next week, stay tuned for Politics, A Love Story with Bob Bashansky. And thank you both for being here and thanks so much to you for listening. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.